Good morning, everybody. So many of you have been asking me, you know, how was Bulgaria? And I shared a little bit about my trip with some of you, and some of you were receiving prayer chain updates, so you have a little bit of an idea of some of the adventure that I encountered. Um, first of all, for those of you who don't know, I recently spent a week in Bulgaria training a group of Romani pastors. And the Romani people are an ethnic group scattered throughout Europe, otherwise known as gypsies. In America, the term gypsy is sometimes considered a derogatory term. But for the Romani people in Bulgaria and other parts of Europe, they don't find that offensive at all. So, uh, but they have, however, uh, been historically marginalized, discriminated against, and so consequently they are, generally speaking, not as economically well-off or as well-educated as other Europeans. That's slowly beginning to change, but they still tend to live in their own villages and, and communities, and they still speak their own language. <clears throat> so, Pastor Mitko and Vanya Dimitrov, uh, a Bulgarian couple who pastor a church uh, in, in a city named Starozagora in Bulgaria. They have a heart for the gypsy people and have spent many years training and educating gypsy pastors all over Bulgaria. Since few of them could afford to go to seminary or, or even to attend a pastor's conference, it's just cost prohibitive for them. So Miko and Vanya approached a longtime friend of mine, a uh, mentor, uh, his name is Mark Shaw, someone who has planted churches all over Europe. <clears throat> with, uh, they, they, uh, Mitko and, and Vanya approached him with the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, not some junk going on this morning, uh, but the, they approached him with the idea of putting together a pastor's conference for the gypsy pastors in Bulgaria. Plan it, fund it, staff it, the whole works, just and make it free for the gypsy pastors. Well, my friend Mark reached out to me and to several other pastors, and three of us said, okay, let's do this. My friend Mark, myself, and one other guy named Dave Kaufman. Well, and, and we funded it. We got donations uh, from a few others. Our church chipped in a little bit. And, and we, even, we, 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 we paid our own way to go and to serve the gypsy pastors in Bulgaria, about 70 pastors. In fact, here's a picture of uh, our team of five. That's Mark Shaw on the left, and then uh, Vanya and Mitko, uh, and then Dave Kaufman, and then me on the right. Now, if you remember, the weekend before I left for, for Bulgaria, in my message that previous Sunday morning, I talked about how we must be willing to step out of our comfort zone and embrace the unpredictable with an attitude of faith and eager anticipation because that's often where God does his best work. You'll never find the best version of yourself inside your comfort zone, I said, if you remember God often works in unpredictable ways, <laughs> I said. Uh, and, I, and as I closed the message that day, some of you told me after the service that they sensed a little bit of apprehension or nervousness as I explained what I'd signed up to do in going to Bulgaria. And if you sensed that in me, you were very perceptive. Um, either that or I was not very good at hiding my apprehension at least not as good as I thought I was. Uh, I mean, I was generally excited to go. Maybe apprehension is not the best word. I, I was generally excited to go. I was very much looking forward to going. Uh, but yeah, training pastors who I knew very little about, 
very little about their culture, very little about their language, what their needs were, what, their cha what challenges they were facing. I mean, we were two languages removed from them. We were speaking to them using uh, Bulgarian translators who were speaking to gypsy pastors for whom Bulgarian was a second language. All that actually turned out to be completely a non-issue. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But a few things happened that, uh, well, nobody could have predicted and, and added a little adventure to the trip. You asked, so I'm going to tell you. Some of you didn't ask, I'm going to tell you anyway. Okay? Uh, so my friend Mark, uh, who had spent the previous week in Vienna working with pastors there, Mark loses his wallet in Vienna the day before he's supposed to arrive in Sofia, Bulgaria. Uh, Sofia is the city, the airport in, in Bulgaria. His wallet had his passport in it. Uh, so the day I arrive in Bulgaria, I, I arrived a day early so I could manage jet lag better. The day I arrive in Bulgaria, I get a text from Mark saying, I don't mean to alarm you, but I just lost my wallet and had my passport in it, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it to Bulgaria tomorrow. He has to go to the U.S. Embassy in Austria to, to get a provisional passport, which typically takes several days, maybe a week or longer, which is be after the conference is over. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, well, now I'm going to have to do this conference with me and one other guy that I've never even met before. Somehow, actually very miraculously, this is a whole other side story, Mark actually is able to get a provisional passport and, and make it to his flight in the nick of time. Turns out that David Coffin's flight was booked through Vienna and just happened to be, he, so he happened to be on the same flight as Mark. So the plan is we're all going to meet at the airport in Sofia, the two of them, myself, and then Mitko, who's going to drive us the three hours to Star Zagora, where Mitko and Vanya live and where the conference is going to be held. So the next day, I'm sitting at the airport, which is not a small airport, it's probably about the size of the Burbank airport, I'm guessing. Not a huge one, but not a small one either. A lot of people are milling around. There's a lot of seating, and I've been sitting there for a while just waiting for Mark and David and Mitko. And uh, after about 10 or 15 minutes, the guy that's been sitting across from me gets up, walks over to me, and says in a thick Bulgarian accent, you're Jim Firth. I said, yes, you must be Mitko. He says, yes, uh, Mark sent me a picture of you. I'll be hosting you and driving all of you back to Star Zagora. And I said, go great. So have you heard from Mark and David that you should be here by now? And Mitko says, no, I haven't heard from them. So we sit down, start getting acquainted for like an hour. And Mark and David have not arrived. Finally, we get a text from Mark explaining that due to high winds, their plane has been diverted from Sofia and they've been diverted to Greece. Uh, yeah, and um, they don't, they, have, they say they have no idea when or if they're going to be able to get to Sofia. So after a few more texts back and forth, it's decided that Miko is going to take me to Star Zagora while they try to figure out if other transportation arrangements are possible. So suddenly, I'm the only guy who's for sure leading this conference driving the three hours to Star Zagora, seven speaking sessions. I, I'm, I'm probably the guy in the team 
that knows the least about what the heck I'm supposed to be doing when I get there. Is Mark going to make it on time? I don't know. Is David going to be there? I don't know. What's the venue like? I don't know. Is there a translator? I don't know. What am I going to be saying to all those people? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the strange thing. Strange thing. It, I wasn't really all that anxious about it. Sure, I mean, my mind started racing. Okay, I can fill seven sessions. I can do this. I can pull from my archives. I can do, I, I can do a few worship tunes. In fact, I could turn some of the sessions, some of those seven sessions, I can turn them into just worship times where, where, where I sing in English. It gets translated into Bulgarian in real time and interpreted in... I don't know. But I just felt like it's all just way too weird for God not to be at work at it somehow. So I was at peace, relatively. Well, long story short, Mark and Dave do manage to get to Star Zagora just in time for this first session. I mean, just in time for the first session, uh, the first session which Mark actually covers. Immediately after which, he's not been feeling well, he tests positive for COVID. Right? He, and he tests a couple times. He's got COVID. So now Mark has to quarantine for the whole rest of the conference while Dave and I share the, the speaking load. I mean, Mark was the key guy. He was the main person. And Dave and I share the, the speaking load. And it was awesome. It really was. It was just, it was just so cool to be able to, to, we saw remarkable things. If you remember the message before I left for Bulgaria, it was all about that. We have seen remarkable things, many remarkable things. But I want to I wanna share just one, one, one remarkable thing in particular. Uh, and I think it's something that most of you will, will be able to relate to. It never ceases to amaze me, no matter where you go in the world, whether in your own country or some other country, no matter what the language barrier, no matter what the cultural barrier, economic or social barrier, no matter what the ethnic or racial barrier, when you walk into a room of Jesus followers, you immediately sense you are with family. I, I was concerned about all those barriers even though I shouldn't have been, I mean, I've experienced the exact same thing many times before on our trips to five seasons in South Africa, uh, when we traveled to Rancho Sotomudo in Mexico. As soon as you walk into the room, you know, these are my family members. These are my brothers and sisters. In fact, let me just, I'll play a little greeting I kind of shot first night, first session, uh, not the first session, second session, first night, where... Um, I'm sending so a greeting. There we go. All right, so I am in Stara Zagora, uh, Bulgaria. And I have the privilege of being with some church family members. From this part of the country and this part so, of the world. Um, yeah. Can you all say greetings to Everybody yes. wave. Everybody wave to them. Thank you, thank you. They can't this see you, but don't, don't worry. <laughs> say again. God bless you from America. Thank you. Thank you.
God bless you to America from, yeah, I messed it up, but uh, that, that's, uh, and it was still a little, that was the first night, and not everybody showed up, yes, so it was a little bit sparse there, but, but why, why is it, what, what is it that makes you feel like, despite all the differences, despite all the natural barriers, you're like family, you all belong to one another. You, you all get each other. There's a sense, I, I get you and you get me. And we can all relate to one another on a dimension that's very difficult to describe. There's a connection there and a trust that transcends all the differences. Let me tell you why I think it is. And it's really not that complicated. Here it is right here. You and I or you and them, or, who, you know, who, you and whoever you're with there, you're all in agreement on the most important things in life. Starting with the very most important thing, there is a God, and He is a God of love. You are all wholeheartedly in agreement on that. You believe that, and it affects every part of who you are. Nobody in that room thinks that God is just some, in, some impersonal some abstract idea way out there somewhere. Everyone fully believes with all their heart that, that he is, a, he is the God, the creator of the universe, and he is a God of love, our heavenly Father. We are all together relating to God as our, as our heavenly Father, and, and it's palpable. You can feel it. And because we know that God is our loving heavenly Father, we all understand that we are to love wholeheartedly love one another. So there's this eagerness you sense to connect with one another and to embrace one another and to serve one another. And, and everybody is completely aware that we don't always do the best job at that. Uh, but, but there's a shared desire, uh, a shared commitment to, to be growing in that. We're all aiming at the same thing and it's, and it's something that you can sense and it's unique and it's wonderful and it's powerful. Here it is put another way. We're all facing the same direction and, and moving together in the same direction. And that direction is toward God himself. Everyone is similarly oriented toward God, facing the same glorious direction, facing heaven, facing paradise. And that creates a bond of fellowship that you instantly experience as soon as you meet another follower of Jesus. No, no matter where in the world you are, you immediately have this connection. By contrast, in our day-to-day -day interactions with the general population, Sadly, not everybody is facing in the same direction, are they? Not everyone acknowledges God or understands that he is a God of love. Not everyone sees God as a loving, heavenly father. And so that connection just isn't, isn't there with a lot of people that you encounter. That sense of unity and belonging that transcends language, culture, ethnicity, economics is just not there. And that's sad, isn't it? And it is not that you don't love and respect those, those other people. Of course, you do very much. And in fact, you love them so much that, that there's something inside you that wants them to turn around and, and face the same beautiful direction that you're facing. Well, we're beginning a new series today called U-Turn. And one of the greatest advantages that human beings have over the rest of the animal kingdom is that we can change we can change our minds. 
We can change our attitudes. We can change our behavior. And in doing so, we can even change our future. It's a truly wonderful ability we have that is unique to humankind. But more than simply being an advantage or an ability, it's, sometime, it's, it's something, rather, that God calls each one of us to do, to change. God calls each one of us to change. The Bible word for that is repentance, to repent. And I know that word is kind of a religious word and, and maybe has a lot of baggage associated with it. Uh, most people are inclined to see that word as a negative word or idea, you know, repent, turn or burn, you know, you've heard that before. Some see it as something you do reluctantly, grudgingly, under threat of coercion. But the actual truth is that repentance is a glorious gift, probably the greatest gift we have as human beings, repentance being wrapped in God's love, grace, and mercy. We can change. We, we are not doomed to be trapped, confined, imprisoned by our bad habits, by our past bad decisions, by our sins and failures. We don't have to remain hostage to our animal nature. We don't have to be victims of our environment or controlled by our lusts and the desires. desires. We can change. We, we can be transformed, and consequently, we can have new beginnings, second, third, and fourth chances, which opens the door to a new future and, and a whole new destiny. I mean, that's good news, right? It's good stuff. When Jesus began his, his ministry, Mark records this. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So, so what does that word repent really mean? If you look it up in the dictionary, you're, you're likely to find it predominantly defined as as. Uh, feeling sorry or, or feeling remorseful. To repent is to feel sorry or to feel regret. The word repent has been around the English language since about the 14th century. But the Greek word for repent, which is, you know, the, the language the New Testament is written in, the language Mark used originally to write his account of the life and teachings of Jesus, as well as all the other New Testament writers, the Greek word for repent is metanoeo. Metanoeo, and it wasn't at all a strictly religious word. To metanoeo was to change your mind. Just change your mind, change your thinking, and by inference, change your actions and behavior. Not, not so much a feeling, but an action or a decision to think differently. And so to change your direction, to turn around. And what I want you to notice today is that central to the good news that Jesus preached was this idea of repentance. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, repent, change your mind. The kingdom of God is now among you, so change your mind, change your direction, believe the good news. Here's what I want to drive home today. Repentance changing your mind and your thinking is at the heart, is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Changing your mind. 
And in this sense, this series is going to dovetail nicely with our previous service, uh, sermon series, First Things First, because repentance truly is the first action or step that you must take in following Jesus. We, we've got to turn around. We have to admit that, you know, that our, our own ideas and our own beliefs and values and practices, they've been wrong. We have to, we have to make a U-turn. Um, you're saying you know, all of us have to do that? Actually, no. Not all of us. Only those of us who are sinners. Jesus was pretty clear about that, right? Remember, he says, you know, it's, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if you're not a sinner, if you have no sin, this message is not for you. Enjoy the rest of your day. For the rest of us, repentance is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, to change your mind and subsequently change your choices and your behavior, to think differently and behave differently, to, to make different choices, which involves admitting that you've been thinking about things wrongly. You were wrong. I was wrong. We have all been wrong. At least all of us sinners have been wrong, which seems to not be something that is very easy for us to do, to admit we're wrong for some reason these days or any day in the past ever. You know, though again, it's truly a wonderful thing that we have this ability, this gift, this gracious gift. Some of us Still not so sure. We're, we're kind of like, you know, we want to hold on to the possibility that we're, we're not sick. Come on. We're not sick. We're, we're not, you know, sinners. So how do you know if you're, if you're sick and then need a, the proverbial doctor and who need to repent? How do you know? Well, here's another way this series is going to beautifully dovetail with the previous one. Last week, Gabe closed out our First Things First series by talking about the Bible and how important it is to all of us and why it's important. And he quoted from Paul's second letter to Timothy where Paul says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God has given us this extraordinary, unique, and truly miraculous collection of documents called the Bible. If you seldom read it or you read it purely, you know, as a critic you're not likely to see how extraordinary and unique and miraculous it is. But when you read it and study it in a humble posture toward God, in an attitude of humility, genuinely seeking the truth, and not just looking for things that's going to substantiate or support your preconceived ideas, when you read it that way, something happens in here. It, your, the, the eyes of your heart, your spiritual vision somehow be, be, begins to, things come into focus. Something happens to you. You very begin to, to realize just how extraordinary and powerful and brilliant and supernatural the Bible really is. That it's not just a book of information, 
but it's actually a book of transformation. And it becomes a book of transformation when, when there is application. You must apply it. Apostle Paul says it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. How do you know if you're a sinner? How do you know if you need to repent? How do you know, how, how do you come to realize what's wrong in your lives? How do you know if you need to turn around? James, Jesus' half-brother, he says this, anyone who listens to the word, you know, the, the scriptures, the Bible, anyone who listens to the word of God, but does not do what it says, you know, does, does not read it in a humble and submissive posture toward God and apply it to their lives, he says, that is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and then after looking at himself goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. We use mirrors to examine and evaluate ourselves, don't we? That, I mean, that's basically why we look in the mirror. We're checking ourselves out and we're kind of seeing you know, what the status is here. Imagine looking at yourself in the mirror and going, okay, there's a wart right there. There's several rogue eyebrows that are, have gone off the rails. There's dirt on my forehead. There's some grease on my chin. There's a piece of broccoli in my teeth. And there's a single nose hair that apparently is on a mission of its own. It's like boldly going where nose, nose hair has gone before. It's, you know. Um, imagine noticing all that in the mirror and then walking out the front door completely forgetting you had all those hygienic challenges. James says that's like a person who reads the Bible but then doesn't apply it or, do, or doesn't read the Bible at all. They don't know that they have all this stuff going on with them. See, a mirror re reflects what we're like on the outside, but God's word reflects what we're like on the inside. The, the writer of Hebrews says this, for the, word of, for, for the word that God speaks is alive and active. It cuts more cleanly than any two-edged sword, or another translation says, cuts cleanly like a scalpel. It strikes through the, the place where the soul and spirit meet to the in, innermost intimacies of a person's being. It exposes the very thoughts and motives of a person's heart. When you read the Bible, your very thoughts and motives are brought into the light, are brought to your attention, and, and, and they're challenged, and they're exposed to your consciousness so, so that you can then make adjustments, and you can then ask, God, help me to change that. Help me to redirect. Help me to think differently about this. There's so many times that I've been wrestling with an issue, struggling, conflicted, sometimes even confused, and, and in my everyday Bible reading, I come across a verse, and the light just comes on. So much so that, that even sometimes it brings me to tears, and it's like, God, you really do know exactly what's going on in me, don't you? And the more I read the Bible, the more those kinds of experiences happen. Words of encouragement, words of conviction, words of instruction and correction, words of healing and comfort, changing the way I think, changing the way I look at things, changing how I feel and how I behave. The Bible is alive and powerful. You know, every once in a while I have a conversation with somebody who says something like, you know, that's really great for you, Jim, um, but... 
I just don't need all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't need church. I don't need the Bible and theology. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a very spiritual person. I believe in God. In fact, I experience God in a very real way in nature, looking at the mountains. And they say, you know, that is far more real t- for me, far more personal, far more tangible than reading the Bible, which is just words on paper. And in one sense, I totally believe them and can even relate. God does reveal himself in nature. I believe it's possible to have a very real, very personal encounter with God through nature, through what he created, to see his beauty, his creative uh, power, and his, and his glory. And when somebody is standing facing a mountain and then turns to look at a map of the mountain, they are, in fact, turning from looking at something that is actual, you know, the real mountain itself, they're turning from something that has peaks and valleys and alpine trees and creeks and meadows crawling with wildlife, they're turning to look then at a map of that mountain, which is just a piece of colored paper. The suggestion being that, you know, maybe perhaps God is like the mountain and the Bible is just like a map of the mountain. But here's the point. If someone wants to actually go anywhere on that mountain, if they want to explore that mountain in any detail, the peaks, the valleys, the alpine trees, and creeks and meadows crawling with wildlife, rather than just looking at it and admiring it from the distance, they're going to need the map. To actually explore the mountain, they will need the map, something that was created by hundreds and hundreds of people who have been there before, helping blaze the trails, survey the peaks and valleys, personally experiencing its breadth and width, its exhilarations and dangers, its hidden secrets. Without the map, you won't know when you're off course. You won't know when you're headed into dangerous territory. You won't know when you need to turn around without the map. Listen, God calls us all to the mountain, not just to admire it from a distance, but to fully engage with it. If the mountain is God, to fully engage with him. Because actually climbing the mountain changes you. Admiring from a distance might make you feel something. It could very well make you feel something, but, but you will only be guessing at what the mountain is really like until you begin exploring it for yourself with map in hand. Looking at it from a distance, you can imagine the mountain however you want. You can, you, you can change the mountain in your imagination, but to grab a map and begin, wa- begin hiking its trails, you discover you can't change a mountain, but the mountain can change you. Here's something I can promise you. No one who has been on the mountain ever comes down the same. And that's God's intention for every one of us. See, the fact is, though, we all have maps that we're following, whether we realize it or not. You, you might think of, uh, uh, of your map as your, your, like your treasure map. We, we are all on a search for treasure and are all using some kind of map in pursuit of the treasure we long for. We, we may not think of it in those terms. When it comes right down to it, that's a fairly accurate description uh, of your journey through life, a treasure hunt. We may describe the treasure using different words, you know, happiness, security, love, 
purpose, pleasure, freedom, but we're all seeking treasure. We are all in a treasure hunt, and we all, every single one of us, have what psychologists call mental maps that we follow in search of our treasure. Whether we're conscious of it or not, every day we wake up and we immediately begin following a map that we have acquired from somewhere or perhaps created ourselves, believing that map is going to take us just a little closer to that coveted treasure that we seek. But here's the problem. Not all maps are created equal. We make up our maps, you know, maps, a good map should represent the way things really are, right? You don't get a map and go, well, you know, I don't like that map. I want, I want Denver to be over here, and I want, you know, and I'm just going to erase. No, maps are supposed to represent the way things are, but not all maps do that. Not all maps are accurate. They don't represent the way things really are in the world. Uh, not all maps include the dangers and potential hazards of various routes. Not all maps display the terrain and geography accurately. They don't all include, you know, the landmarks and signposts. In fact, there's some really, really bad maps being circulated out there. Maps that promise to deliver, to lead to freedom and happiness, but actually only wind up delivering bondage and addiction. Maps that seem to show a, a, a road leading to treasure, but it actually winds up being a dead end. Maps that just have us going in circles. There are a lot of inaccurate shoddy, bogus maps in circulation. And these defective and unreliable maps are the primary source of human misery in the world today. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, he writes this, the emotional, familial, societal, political meltdown we've been living in for years now is daily proof of the fact that our mental maps are off that we're drifting further and further into dangerous territory. So true. The book of Proverbs says there is a way that seems to be right, but in the end it leads to death. There is a map, however, that is proven over and over again, year after year, century after century, for millennia, to be reliable, to be trustworthy and faithful. There is a map that is proven to be true, and that map is the Bible. It's the Word of God. That's why the psalmist wrote, Your Word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. And that's why Jesus himself said, The Spirit is the one who gives life. Human nature is of no help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Worship team, why don't you guys come back up? There's a lot of division and debate over a lot of things in our day. A lot of bitter disagreement. And everybody is thinking that they're right, which is a logical impossibility. Everybody can't be right, especially when everybody's ideas contradict everybody else's idea, which seems to be most of the time. And so who's right and who's wrong? A lot of fighting and anger and hostility over who's right and who's wrong. That's the big question, isn't it? Who's right and who's wrong? A Jesus follower is one who says, I'm wrong. 
I'm wrong. And Uri's like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that. You finally admit it. You're right, or, or you're wrong, and I'm right. And Jesus' followers like, no, no. No, I'm wrong, and you're wrong. And we're all wrong. All of us, we're wrong. There is only one who is right, and that's Jesus. And he is our only hope. Our only hope is to abandon our idea of goodness, our idea of justice, our own ideas and opinions about morality and truth, and embrace his ideas of goodness and morality and justice and truth. Now, I know skeptics will, you know, find all kinds of problems with that argument. Well, that's just another way of you saying that you're right. But no, I'm not right. The answer is not mine. The answer... The answer does not come from me. It comes from someone bigger than me. The answer comes from someone above me, someone higher than me or you. And our only hope is to realize we don't have the answers ourselves. The answer is not within us. It is not something we can arrive at on our own, much less something we can invent, which it seems to be many people trying to do today. We human beings must abandon the idea we can figure things out on our own and we must admit we have been wrong and turn around and begin moving toward God, the one who alone is right, the one who alone is truth. See, Christians are not not better than anyone else. Christians are not smarter than anyone else. We're just beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find food. The truth, we don't have a corner on the truth. Only God is truth, and we can only know truth when we let go of our being right and embrace God's truth. This morning, we're going to receive communion together, uh, something that we do traditionally here at Hope on the first Sunday of every month. Um, we're going to receive communion in just a moment. Let's sing the first part of a chorus, and I'll be back in a minute to lead us in communion.